With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Welcome. Today's episode is an interview I did with author Kathleen West about her new book, Home or Away. This is about two friends, one Olympic dream and the choice that stood in the way. Kathleen herself is a hockey mom, and that went in a lot into this book, which we talk about in this interview. I'm really excited for you to listen to this. Kathleen was a delight to talk to, and as someone who doesn't know anything about hockey, the book and story was so interesting, and I just love the way it was presented and and hope you will too. If you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. You can email us at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. And of course, our website is ProfessionalBookNerds.com. So, short and sweet today, y'all. It is a holiday weekend uh, here in the United States. So, you know, let's, let's enjoy ourselves this weekend. I hope you are listening to this uh, on a day off. For Labor Day, if if you have today off. So with that, hope you enjoy this interview with Kathleen West on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Home or Away? Sure. Home or Away is a novel about two women who are on the cusp of making the 2002 Olympic hockey team. And one of them makes the team and the other one doesn't. And Lee, the one who doesn't, leaves hockey behind forever and remakes her life outside of the sport um, until her nine-year-old son expresses a desire to be one of the best. And his ambition kind of thrusts them back into the Minnesota hockey world, and she has to confront everyone she left behind and all the secrets she thought she had left behind 20 years before. Um, Yes, and there are some secrets and things left behind. (laughs) So (laughs) you yourself are a hockey mom, is that correct? Oh, yes, a reluctant. (laughs) I'm a reluctant hockey mom. I... um, my older son, I, so I'm from Minnesota. This is like the state of hockey. So every suburb has its own association, a lot of youth teams here, and a lot of like storied high school programs. And I'm a high school English teacher. I have taught middle school, lower school, high school for a long time. Um, and my the schools that I've worked in, the first two where I started my careers have very intense and like legacy hockey programs. And seeing that, I was like, oh no, we're not going here as a family. So I I didn't let my older son start to play hockey until third grade, which is late. Like it's very hard to get good if you start in third grade. But at the same time that I let him start playing hockey, I let my younger son, who's four years behind him, also play. And kindergarten is not too late as long as you already know how to ice skate. So now that kid is pretty into hockey. And I've managed to like 
fail to learn most of the rules and everything until I research this book. But yes, I'm a hockey mom. You can find me in the hockey arena between October and March and sometimes in the summer. I was going to say, I don't really know anything about hockey, but um, yeah, it does seem like a sport that is both very expensive and one where you have to start very early if you want to be like any good at it. Yes. And that's a big reason why I picked hockey for this book. I, I, I love sports and I'm really interested in sports culture, like American sports culture, American sports parenting culture. Um, so I really wanted to write a sports book and ice hockey was interesting to me especially because of that aspect of needing to start really young because you have to know how to ice skate really well. So if you don't, it's not just learning like strategy and passing and catching and all that stuff. You also need to know how to skate. So that adds like another layer of intensity on top of it. And the parents and families to whom hockey, you know, is really important. Their kids are skating by 18 months. So it's really intense. Like, I just like imagining an 18 month year old along they usually hold the back of a chair and there are like kids skates and then they're like kind of just sliding back and forth their feet holding onto the back of a chair across the ice wow okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i you know um one of the things that this book sort of touches on is this idea of being a woman in a heavily male dominated sport like hockey. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could sort of like walk us through that a little bit, you know, cause like Susie's worried about her daughter being kind of be like, Oh, she's a girl hockey player yeah. <laughs> versus anything else. Yeah. And that was another reason why hockey for me, like um, women's hockey started here in Minnesota in the mid nineties. So um, while girls were playing varsity sports in a lot of other areas, you know, well before that, hockey was the mid-90s, like pretty late. And so the women in this book would have grown up playing on boys' teams and kind of fighting for every kind of ice time, every position, every opportunity that they had. And so I think naturally they would have had sort of a chip on their shoulder or an attitude about always having to be bigger, better, faster, more, um, perhaps even more than athletes in a different sport. So. Um, I was interested in, in that. And also just women's ambition has always been a topic that's really fascinating to me and that I've explored in all three of my novels so far. Um, I'm a pretty ambitious person in general, and a lot of my friends are, and I think that um, society tends to um, suppress women's ambition or to view it negatively or as selfishness or bitchiness or something else. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was pretty interested in looking at women who are just blatantly ambitious. And you have to be in order to, like these women in this book are trying to be the best in the world at something. So in order to be the best in the world at something, it has to be your primary focus and you have to be very into it, <laughs> you know, like at every yeah. stage of the game. Something For fun sure. of this book, I got to interview a few hockey players, including one of my former students who currently plays for the University of Minnesota. And she is, um, you know, an elite player, aspires to be an Olympian. And she was telling me, like, her coaches tell her it's not just during game time. It's not just once every four years. It's every moment of every day. Like, what are you doing every moment of every day to be the best? And so I just think those little reminders of, of what it takes to do that inform the characters for sure for sure yeah and you know i should say that like while hockey as a sport plays a significant part in the book 
Um, a lot of this story is really about Susie and Lee and the relationship that they have both 20 years ago and where it is now. And it is incredibly complex. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, that was another thing. That aspect of the book took a long time to develop many, many drafts to get their friendship right. And I think part of that is because it's very hard to navigate a friendship in an environment of such intense competition. Um, and they've always been, they've, the two women in the book are in their, it's 20 years since the 2002 Olympics, obviously, and they've been, um, they've known each other since high school, and they've always been in the same sphere. Um, so they've been direct competition for one another for like high school of the year athlete, um, college, national college titles, all of this, like uh, for all this time. And one of them clearly won out, like Susie has mm -hmm. two Olympic medals and Lee got cut. And so that like final, final like ranking of them um, ruined their friendship for a long, long time. Right. And sort of on that, you know, one thing that I like that this book sort of explores um, and something that I think a lot of us can relate to is this idea that for many of us, there might be this like one moment in our life that we feel defines the trajectory of everything else. And you see yeah. it in several characters have this moment that just like sticks out to them as like that, that, that was the moment where things yeah. were one way or the other. You know, I've been thinking about that more lately. And for Lee, obviously, it's that moment in the decision room. Like, um, she's sitting there and they're announcing who's on the Olympic team. And I did get to interview some women who were in that room. So I tried to get it, like, exactly as, as well as I could. Um, but it is true, like, as they're announcing the team, and, and you, this is a scene in the very beginning of the book, um, the coaches just kind of list the team in alphabetical order. So once you get past your last name, you know you're not on the team, but you still have to sit in the room while they can, you know, and act like a normal person while they continue um, to do it. So for Lee, that's the moment. And her whole identity has been focused on that particular achievement. She can't even picture what else might be part of her self-worth or her future or her goals beyond it. Um, but there are so many of those moments like in our lives. I've just been talking about it with my my 11, I teach 11th grade this year and my students, we've been reading Their Eyes Were Watching God um, by Zora Neale Hurston and the character in that book has several defining moments and we've just been talking about that like that, like what if one decision is the one that kind of catapults you in a different direction and while I think it can be true, I also think like the reality is there's a series of them, you know, like, I don't know, maybe one a year or one of the years that gets you pivoting in another way. That's that's probably true. I probably was like, no, there's only one and then that's it. <laughs> but you're yeah. right. There probably are um, little, little decisions along the way that um, sort of open different doors and lead to different kind of branches. Um, yeah. That's sort For of interesting yeah. to think about. I think for her, like one of the things that was so challenging about that moment was that it wasn't a decision that she made. It was right. like someone else's choice or a failure that she experienced that she just can't figure out how to rebound from. For sure. So the book is told in dual timelines, both in the present and then 20 years prior. And these, you know, two timelines start to kind of fill in the gaps of, for readers about what happened. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when writing dual timelines, how do you kind of decide what nuggets of information to put where and when in your book to put the puzzle together? 
this was really hard for me and I've never done dual timelines before. Um, and although I have dual timelines here, like most of the book is in the present and I think there are like six or seven chapters at the training camp where, yeah. where everything went down. So it was pretty hard to do. It was pretty hard on a couple of levels. Um, one is like, I'm a very prudish person by nature and um, the, the timeline in the past has like a, an affair, like a yeah. sexual affair between, um, I almost said romantic, but it's absolutely not romantic. And that was one of the other things that was really tricky about writing it is that not only was I writing sort of this intimacy for the first time, but like it had to have an ick factor to it. So that was really hard for me. Um, and I put it off for a long time until finally, like I gave my agent a draft and she's like, you are going to have to tell us what happened at the training camp. And I'm like, Oh God. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the second, once I got past that, the second thing that was really hard was having these characters be recognizable. Um, you know, like the character 20 years in the future, it, it's the same person, but of course, none of us are the same person as we were 20 years ago, and I'm probably not going to be the same person 20 years from now. So yeah. having them be like stable and thinking about what aspects of their personalities would be stable, um, that was something else that was pretty tricky. And my writing group helped me a lot with those. I have a, two, it's a three person group. So my two critique partners really helped me with those parts. I also needed when another thing that was really hard was their their friendship had to be credibly strong, like very mm -hmm. strong in the past. Um, and just finding little moments that would show that was um, was pretty hard. It was hard. So, yes, it was very hard to write the dual timelines. It took a long time and it was one of the last things to come together. That relationship was one of the last things to come together. That makes sense. You know, just sort of thinking about my own relationships and friendships over the years. Um, there's just like little things that make it like make them all unique. But whether we're still friends now or not, it's just yeah, relationships are hard. <laughs> it's they like are. Sometimes there's just like a moment or just like one tiny detail that kind of communicates like, oh, they have this kind of yeah, feel. and. It was really fun when those finally came to me, but it took a long time. Now let's take a quick break for our sponsor. Before you book any brunch, you pour over lists and lists of reviews. So why not do the same thing when booking a doctor's appointment? With ZocDoc, you can see real, verified patient reviews to help find the right doctor in your network and in your neighborhood. After all, finding the right doctor is just as, if not more, important than finding the right plate of Eggs Benedict. Go to ZocDoc.com slash ProBookNerds and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash ProBookNerds. ZocDoc.com slash ProBookNerds. And now let's get right back in to talking about those books. So I want to take a moment to talk about Jeff. Um, I'm curious, how do you go about creating a character who has like no redeeming qualities at all? I know. Isn't that funny? I think he's the only character that I've written that has no redeeming qualities. And um, someone asked me, a couple weeks ago about like how do you decide who gets a point like I have multiple points of view in the book so mm -hmm. you read from Lee's point of view from Susie's point of view etc and 
they asked like, how do you decide who gets a point of view? And I had tried to write Jeff as a point of view character, but I, my style is to go very close into the brain of the person that I'm writing about. And I just hated being in Jeff's brain. Like he's not a good person. He manipulates young women. Um, and Lee happens to have been the first woman that he that we know about that he yeah. successfully manipulated. And so she feels like she was, she had consented or she was part of it for a long time. She feels that way. Um, but yeah, he, unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of guys like that um, out there, but it was, I wanted as much narrative distance from him as possible. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That's mm -hmm. fair. <laughs> also, yeah, I mean, I feel like that would be, it, that's hard to pull off, uh, you know, writing a character like that from their point of view, because as a writer, there's that like urge to try and make them sympathetic and you don't want them to be at all. And yeah. so I mean, that narrative I, distance helps. I like to humanize everyone that I'm writing about, like, cause I think that very few of us are all or nothing in any way. So I really like to explore a lot of people, probably the most frequent criticism I'll hear of my books is like, I didn't really like any of the people. Um, and I think it's because, um, I do go really closely into their heads. And so how many of us have like positive and warm thoughts about the world 100% of the time, like very few. Um, so I, I think that's why, like I include people's negative thoughts in their, their unflattering thoughts, but for, but they also have a lot of wonderful things about them. And Jeff, I just, he doesn't, he just doesn't. I, yeah, I'm always so intrigued by this idea of that, like characters have to be likable because <laughs> it just, it feels, I think we can all be likable in different ways. And I think, yeah, when they use words like likable, it feels artificial because I'm like, what are you really saying? They're, well, they're you know, I, yeah, I'm, it's when I see that critique, I'm like, I might actually like those characters then because. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, it's a, I think it's a way of like um, codifying misogyny, frankly. Like, I just think that um, women who are writing contemporary fiction about families like me, you know, like there are a lot of writers like me, um, we are subjected to that unlikable character criticism a lot more than the men who are writing contemporary fiction about families. Like I'm reading Tom Parada's new novel, Tracy Flick Can't Win mm -hmm. right now. And I love Tom Parada. So this is not like a criticism of him and I'm really enjoying that book, but it's women's fiction. And if I had written it, it would be like, um, none of these characters are likable, that these are despicable people, you know, but instead people are going to say like, this is a wry and witty look at modern family life. And I'm like, yeah, that's what men get to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually a good example because when you think of Tracy Flick as a character, you know, what people do like about her is that she is unlikable. And yeah. you're right, you would not find that same reaction um if a if a book had been or if Tracy had been created by a woman. No, and she is like unabashedly ambitious. Yeah. Which yeah, I I love it. I like the book. I liked the um I've read I think his whole catalog. So it's not about him. It's just about the right. The, the right. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. 
Um, so as you sort of touched on a little bit, the book touches on some, you know, me too stuff. There is, you know, coaches or, you know, um, well, yeah, male coaches and, and the female athletes that they work with and sort of the inappropriateness that can happen there for you, you know, why was it important for you to explore those themes through fiction? You know, at this point in my life, I am 44 years old. I have two teenage sons um, and I've been a teacher for so long. I really think about raising ethical kids, um, especially ethical white boys um, <laughs> to live in the world. Um, and I, I don't have very many friends. I don't think I have any friends who have had like no experiences of either, you know, cut and dry sexual harassment, sexual assault, or just like a very icky situation that they've been in. Yeah. And I think it's so unfortunately ubiquitous that I don't know, it just, I just had to go there, I think. And I was especially interested in how damaging it had been to Lee because she is so quote strong, you know, like that is her primary characteristic, at least the way that she sees herself or wants to present herself to the world. And and looking at herself as a victim was untenable to her, which is why it took her so long to figure out what had actually happened when she was young. So I don't know, it, it seemed very true to that character and story and unfortunately very true to the world. Um, as we've seen, like since I have written the book, the whole um, many coaching scandals have come out in women's soccer and track and field, like men are still doing this <laughs> to young women. So. I don't know. It was just right there when I was writing a women's sports story. I felt like it just belonged. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. This idea that things sometimes happen to us when we're younger and it takes us a long time to figure out what was really happening. And I think part of that is, as you said, it's, it's so ubiquitous that we just sort of, you know, it's, it's always there, but also I think when you're younger, like a teenager or in your early twenties or whatever, you just don't have the perspective to fully understand, or you think you're more empowered in these situations than you actually are, which is so strange to look back on certain things in life and be like, oh no, that was, that was, that that good. was not good. That was not good. Yeah. I think that's really true. Um, and a lot of the story is about women you know, in their forties, middle-aged women looking back and kind of making peace with their former selves. And, and they think Lee thinks that she has something to forgive in herself, but, and she does like, there are some aspects of dishonesty and her own manipulation or whatever that, that she did, but she also had to look back and, and, um, accept, you know, accept yeah. that there were things beyond her control. For sure. So you mentioned um, that you are a teacher and over the past few years, I've talked with a lot of authors who have shared how difficult it was for them to continue writing during this pandemic, but you have that added bonus of being a teacher and teaching during the pandemic, which I'm sure also has some effect on your writing schedule as well. So I'm just sort of yeah. been like writing for you for the past few years. Well, I had one full year off from teaching after I signed my first book deal. I had just moved to third grade and I have been trained as a secondary teacher. So being in third grade was like having a brand, being a brand new teacher again. Yeah. Um, and I, I realized I couldn't write a second book and continue to teach third. So I actually took the whole year of 2019, 20 off 
And that was the first lockdown year. And during the pandemic, I just realized that it wasn't good for me to not be teaching. Um, I found that in the very difficult moments of my life and in world events that are very difficult, it, it helps me to be with kids and to have to be the adult in the room who is approaching each day with a level of cheerfulness and optimism. And even if I have to fake that, that kind of gets me through. Whereas like being home here in the depths of despair, like that wasn't helpful to me. So going back to teaching was a pretty easy decision, also made easier by the fact that I have a kid going to college next year and college is very expensive. <laughs> That's fair. That's so fair. I love that. And I, it's been a good balance, although right now I'm not in a period of great balance. I have kind of lost my writing mojo for the first time in, I don't know, six or seven years. Um, and I'm, I'm really going to have to get it back. So I don't know what it's going to take, some Pomodoro method or something. I'm going to get through the next three weeks and finish the school year and then like give myself a massive kick in the pants. Yeah, it writing is hard right now. Writing is hard <laughs> right now. It's also hard because you put your, like Homer away, I still feel like is, it's, I feel the best on a craft level of my three books by far. And I'm very proud of what I managed to pull out of myself. And I don't know that I can do better. And so as a very ambitious person and a very like results oriented person, I'm like, well, that was it. Like, I'm not sure. That's not true. <laughs> and I'm done. So I need to change my attitude about that, like better on what level. I know the I can poke the holes in that theory myself, but that's the emotional reality that I'm living in right now. I mean, I think that's fair. And that I think we always think are the most recent thing we've written is the best thing we've ever written in our entire lives. And we're never going to write again. That's anything that's as good. It's not true though. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to take your word for that. <laughs> but yeah, something about this pandemic is just, it's challenging in the writing sphere of, of trying to just like create things out of thin air is, is yeah. not easy. And I think I'm trying to give myself a little grace, like this experience of graduating a high school senior um, obviously everyone has done it before. I just read Mary Laura Philpott's latest book, Bomb Shelter, which was like the perfect book to read if you have a senior. Um, and people have done it, but it is, it does feel really momentous to have worked, like if, having this child in my house and in my life for every day for 18 years, like it's a project that I've worked on for 18 mm -hmm. years. And now to be like, what? Like it, obviously I'm not done and it's not over, but this emotional thing is weighing on me too. That makes sense. That makes sense. We have a lot going on. It sounds yeah, like. there's a lot going on. There's always a lot going on. So <laughs> uh, um, I will say when I was doing research for this, I came across an interview you did um, where you talked about writing scenes that you know you won't use oh, as yeah. like a way to. And I have to say that was like super helpful to me uh, as okay. a writer. <laughs> I even shared it with a friend of mine. I'm like, this is what I needed. So. Um, I, I love that idea of like writing scenes, you know, you will not use, but it's a way to get to know those characters. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you have like other scenes from those like 2001 years or when Lee and Susie were in high school that you sort of knew. I think all of those came, all of the ones I thought of, I think are in the book, probably because okay. they came later. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think about that. 
I do the strategy I stole from the author Nina LaCour. She has several young adult novels. She's a beautiful writer and she has her adult debut coming out soon. Um, and the strategy I've, I stole is to write the five pivotal life events of each character that happened before your story begins. Um, and then beyond that, I usually end up writing more that gets cut. I'm not a super efficient writer in terms of planning. Yeah. I don't think I had written any other scenes of Lee and Susie together in high school because I knew they had to, I knew it what had to happen to get them to the camp. Yeah. So not, I don't think I did. That would be fun to do. I should probably do that. See, maybe that'll help you get like into that maybe. writing thing. Maybe. A couple of people have also told me that I should, Georgie is Susie's daughter and she's mm -hmm. like the only girl on the boys team. And a lot of people have said, I'd love to read like a, a book about her in high school. And I was like, oh, maybe I should try a little of that and see what happens. Yeah, there you go. Well, mm -hmm. I've had so much fun talking with you. I just have one question left, which okay. is what do you hope readers take away from home or away? Hmm. Well, the thing that came to my mind first today is that I hope readers can forgive their prior selves, <laughs> you know, like come to terms with who you were in the past and move forward. I think that is a perfectly acceptable answer. <laughs> well, <laughs> Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to chat with me. Thank you, Jill. This is a lot of fun. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.